You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Chris Browning from Popcorn Finance and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Hello, this is Erica Young and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Hi, this is Julian. And this is Kirsten, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This should be interesting. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversified.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, today we're asking the question, is the journey to financial independence different for the African-American community? So we have four guests today that are going to share their experience on their path to financial independence coming from their place in the African-American community. And so I'd like for each of you guys to go through and give us a quick introduction, and then we'll have each of you go through and answer the question later on. Chris, do you mind giving us a quick intro, please, sir? My name is Chris Browning. I host the Popcorn Finance Podcast. The whole premise there is that I discuss finance with a bunch of great guests and about the time it takes to make a bag of popcorn. Wonderful. Erica, can you give us a quick introduction, please? Absolutely. I'm Erica Young. I'm a financial coach for the last almost 14 years with TaylorMade Budgets, and I love helping couples get on the same page with their money. Fantastic. Thanks for being on. Julian and Kirsten, can you give us a quick introduction, please? Hey guys, this is Julian. And I'm Kirsten. And we blog at richandregular.com. All right. So I'm going to start with the rich and regulars, Kirsten specifically. I watched your video of your presentation at the campfire recently, and I was really taken by the fact that you started the conversation by talking about the racial wealth gap. And about halfway into the talk, you said, okay, there's a plot twist. This is not what I'm really here to talk about today. You said something pretty much off the cuff, but I was very interested. You said, now we're going to talk about something you can relate to. So the audience that was at Camp Fi, can they not relate to the racial wealth gap in our personal finance community as it stands today? I think what I meant was that they can't relate to it the same way that I do because they're on the winning side of the gap. So a little bit of context, Camp Fi had about 60 plus attendees, 59 of them were white, and then there was Julian, myself, white and Asian, uh, and then there was Julian, myself, and one other African-American woman there. And so it was really important that we ground our conversation and our experience based off of the context of being Black in America, and that we are coming from a different starting place. We have some mental barriers and mindset issues that we need to overcome on top of the systemic issues associated with 
slavery and Jim Crow laws and just all the things that have, you know, traditionally held African-Americans back from achieving the same wealth levels. Julian, you know, you brought up a statistic in that talk that I think really wowed everyone. I don't know if everyone is aware of the racial wealth gap. You talked about a recent article that talked about the average net worth of black people in Boston. And what did that story tell? Yeah. And so uh, I want to say it was the median net worth uh, for black Bostonians. And uh, it, it was in the single digits. We asked a group of people that were at Camp Fly to guess and someone shouted out $30,000, which was a relevant guess, good guess. But the number is $8. The median net worth uh, as of 2017 for black Bostonians is $8. And so we were talking about that, and, and I don't know if we had mentioned it before or afterwards, but the point was to highlight that this is a crisis. And, and we had hoped that at some point the racial wealth gap would earn that title, because for some reason, once you earn the word crisis, things start to happen, plans start getting in motion, and all of a sudden people start paying a little more attention. Chris, we talk about this crisis and you're out there having a podcast and speaking about personal finances. And you're also a black male. I saw that you were noted by what was it, Nerd Wallet, that said you were one of the 12 financial black or African American financial gurus to follow. Are you, when creating content, thinking about black people as your audience specifically? Whenever I come up with an idea for an episode or just think of some topic that would be you know, fun to go over, I'm not thinking about it as far as, you know, this is specifically for someone who's black or who's white or Latino. It's to me, money is money and we all need the same information. And I think for many years, it hasn't been treated that way where it's been the equality in the education and the understanding of how finances work. So for me, I don't want someone to talk to me differently because I'm black. I can understand the same topics that anyone else can understand. So when I come up with an episode topic or an idea, I'm just talking to people. And I feel that we all can understand it. We just need to have it presented to us in a way that's easy to understand and not a bunch of jargon and throwing out terms that no one's really ever heard before. Erica, kind of a similar question to you. You are a financial advisor. You're a financial coach. Do you feel like a large percentage of the people you coach are African-American people? And if they are, do you think the conversation is different? Most of my clients are not African-American. I also, just like Chris, I market to all people and my jargon is the same. However, I tend to work a lot on mindset within the African-American community because of oppression, because of poverty. In a sense, being the underdogs and speaking to what Julian already mentioned is that you know, we are not on the top side of the financial independent spectrum. And so I think discussing mindset and helping people to understand that they too can be there, they too can have financial independence, but it is not something that I think comes to mind right away for our community. Kirsten, we say that money is money, right? And dealing with finances, investing, et cetera, it doesn't differentiate between race or religion, et cetera. But you guys also talk about your interest in breaking the generational cycle of poverty. So whereas money doesn't have a color, certainly we all have different histories. How does that play a role in your message? I think he's acknowledging that. It's one thing to read media and listen to podcasts where everyone's saying, hustle, 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 save, save, save. And if it were that simple as to just hustle, to just save more, then there would be a lot more rich people. And there certainly would be a lot 
more rich black people because we're some of the hardest working people on the planet. But to Erica's point, there's mindset that needs to be overcome. There are money lessons that need to be overcome. And then there's just a general exposure issue. Uh, We talk about, you know, college as this thing that's optional and maybe not even relevant anymore. But for a lot of people of color from certain communities, that's the first time that they have access to working white people, uh, successful white people that can help them and make the intros they need to be high income earners. And so there are all these vessels and places in society that are still necessary and still need to be introduced to a community of people in order to even you know, to be the first step of even thinking about something as grand as financial independence. I think the issue a lot of times is just knowing the right question to ask. And it's kind of hard to find the information you need if you don't know what to ask for. I know, especially for me growing up, finance wasn't something that we talked about. Money wasn't talked about at our house. And I didn't know what to ask to learn what I needed to know. And I think in African-American communities, sometimes if you're not exposed to that, have people talking about money, if you don't have, you know, the opportunity to get in there and get your hands dirty and learn how to budget, learn how to plan, because you're just kept separate from it sometimes, I think it makes it difficult then to know the right questions to ask, to put yourself in a position to, to be more knowledgeable. I really like that because I kind of get the sense that they're not even asking questions, right? So you almost have to bring it to the attention of someone who doesn't know how to deal with money. I'm curious, in the African-American community, is there a different mindset that you're having to work on as opposed to the general population? Is there a unique set of knowledge gap? There is the climb to just get to the same level before you can actually believe that you are able and capable of whatever their independence is. And so the mindset shift is that we can actually be on the same playing field first, and then I can actually aspire for more than that. I think the struggle of earning enough money, earning similar monies to your counterparts who don't look like you, and subsequently managing it well and feeling confident in that comes before believing that you can even reach higher levels. And I think that part of the mindset shift is different and necessary in order for African-Americans to not only win, but excel at money management. Julian, if you could speak to that mindset, you've been fairly vocal about your mom's financial insecurity. Does she understand that mindset? Did you have to try to train her to see the mindset of dealing with your finances? Absolutely. And I still am, you know, like anyone else, we're all sort of still learning and there will always be something else to learn. But I want to take a step back and go back to a couple of things that Chris and, and Erica mentioned, um, because you know I don't want to frame up this conversation to assume that all African-Americans are sort of at the same level either, right? It is way more complex than that. And so there is, and I'm speaking from our perspective, we live in Atlanta, aka Wakanda. I mean, there is a completely different set of African-Americans that live here. And I can tell you, personal finance here is not a matter of education, right? This is not a matter of teaching people the difference between a Roth and a traditional IRA. Those are not the light bulbs that need to go off in Atlanta, right? And we can speak to that because we are friends with these people. That's not the issue here. And so what's core to our message is to focus less on education and all of the other things that get in the way of people kind of waking up and realizing the potential of the capital that they have in their hands. And so we are completely aware of the fact that that particular message may not relate to everyone, you know, pick a state, name a state, or, you know, the same blog post we just talked about people in Boston, like 
that wouldn't resonate with them because we're talking about things that are just completely way above their everyday reality. They're trying to figure out how am I going to keep the lights on? But with that said, there is a significant group of people that do have that money and we're trying to get to the root of that. So you have the access. Earning is not the issue for you. Education is not the challenge for you. Help me understand why you would not be able to adopt some of the components or the lifestyle that we in the FI or FIRE community are adopting. Pearson, if you can speak to that a little bit in reference to your parents. I mean, you grew up with two high-wage earning parents in a middle-class upbringing. I hate to say this, but a lot of white people don't know black people who were brought up in a middle or upper class neighborhood. Are these messages resonating with people who are higher wage earners? Are they having those conversations about Roth versus not Roth, et cetera? I don't think so, at least not in that format. I mean, I think for a lot of us who are I guess, second generation middle class. My parents certainly didn't grow up middle class. They both grew up poor and it took them many, 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 many years to be six figure earners. And even in that, they're the first people who make that kind of money without using their hands, you know, not associated with the trade business, nursing or driving trucks or they're the first, right? That's my model. And I think the struggle with people like me who grew up in that household is that your parents tell you that they did all this, they worked so hard, so that you don't have to grow up the way that they did or that you don't have to struggle the way they did. And they already identify living frugally as struggling. And so when we choose to live frugally, that's a choice that is a disconnect for them because we are, we're not doing it out of necessity. We're doing it because we want this other dream for ourselves. And that's been the hardest part is just connecting the gap of, you know, I'm still very appreciative of upbringing. I acknowledge everything that it's brought to me my life is going to look a little different because of the path that I'm on. I think that's really important, Kirsten, too, because one thing that I find in the African-American community is when you used to not having things or you've always had to say no or your parents lived paycheck to paycheck and struggled to make sure that you had a better life, there is something that happens where at some point, African-Americans tend to become more consumers and spending our money on things that don't have lasting value. And so that's one of the mindset issues that I also work on with my clients in terms of the need versus want, the bigger dream goal, or, you know, looking down to the future and being more of a visionary down the line versus consumption today. I think that that's one of the things that I war against with some of my clients, because we feel at this point, one of the ways that we see wealth is in things. And I struggle with family members and, you know, the purchases that are made that are way beyond what makes sense for their particular income, handbags, hair, clothing, all of that, cars in particular, just the status of what looks like versus looking towards the future. But I think it comes from you know, not having a whole lot as you've grown up and not being used to being able to spread your wings like that a little bit. Chris, how you respond to this, you're an accountant. So I imagine family and friends look at you and say, hey, you're a professional. Now's the time to loosen the reins. Now's the time to spend a little more, maybe show people a little bit more of what you got. Do you feel this pressure? Not really, because I kind of ignore my friends when they tell me stuff. 
I grew up really similarly to uh, Kirsten. So both my parents, they grew up poor. They grew up in the South. My dad grew up in Arkansas. My mom's from Louisiana. They came out here. They, you know, they didn't have a ton of money, but eventually they moved up to middle class. My mom is an accountant. That's kind of where I got my background from. And when we were younger, we struggled, but I don't really remember that. By the time I was old enough to remember things, she had a really stable job and she began to earn more and more and move up further and further to where, for me, I had a very middle class upbringing. But very similarly, they had the idea of, you know, we got you to this point, you know, we want you to work hard still, but you know, we don't want you to go back. You know, it's kind of like they were the stepping stone. They got me to a point where I could be comfortable and now I have the options that I have now. But then very similarly to what Kirsten said, when I now choose to cut back and live a modest life, it's almost like, well, why? You know, you don't have to. Why don't you buy a new car? Why don't you do this? And it's kind of like, well, I can, but I don't want to. And there's these reasons why I don't. And it's a completely different mindset. Like Erica was saying, you know, teaching people about mindset. It took someone mentioning this financial independence world to me to make me think differently because, you know, I've leased cars. I bought stuff I didn't need to buy just because it felt like that was the next step. I have a secure job. I'm making enough money. Why don't I treat myself and enjoy these things? But it takes someone expose you to something that you've never known about to make you think differently. And I think that's a struggle sometimes is that if you're coming from a family where they've maybe grew up struggling or maybe they've struggled most of their life and now they want you to take that next step, it's different. You have to think differently than everyone else versus if you come from a family where you've had years of financial security and years of wealth and it's much easier for you to now say, you know what, I'm going to try something different. I have these options because you have these people saying, just go for it. You know, you, we brought you to this point. We, this is our lifestyle and it's not so different for you to just do whatever you want to do, I think. Both of you guys have talked on your blog about the African-American wealth role models we have in society today and how they may not be fitting in what they're teaching us. Can you speak, Kirsten, a little bit to that? Are these the best role models we have today in the public culture of African-American wealth? I think they're solid, but the very small group of elite players, right? The role models that are displayed most for Black people in media are exceptional. They're the Barack Obamas. They're the Oprahs. They are the LeBron James. And it's like, those people are literally one of a kind. You can't replicate that path. It's not repeatable. But there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Black people who are just regular, rich people. And white people have had this concept of the millionaire next door, and that was a thing. And like, there are lots of white people who feel like, oh, I grew up comfortable. <laughs> and their parents have, you know, a million dollar portfolio. <laughs> And for us, you know, we talked about this in our speech, having over a million dollars in assets, a million, a net worth of a million and a half in the African-American community puts you in the 1% of, of Black Americans. It's not just a number. It skyrockets you in terms of the hierarchy. And it's really interesting that more people aren't seen as just like regular rich instead of like rich, rich, <laughs> like approachable rich. I still have a toddler. I do my own hair. I wash my own dishes. I, you know, I have a 10 year old car and I'm rich and that's okay. Like, I don't have to always be this glammed up version of rich. I don't have to be hyper visible or famous. I'm just a regular person who does her own grocery shopping. And that's a model as well. I don't think there's enough of that. Yeah. I think Julian, you were talking about paying off your mortgage. And at one point you said that makes you guys black unicorns. And that, I got quite a laugh out of that from your presentation. There's not enough focus on Black people maybe not making it to the multi-million dollar stage, but being well off and being good financial stewards. Are we not talking about this enough, Julian? 
we're not talking about it, but I think more importantly, we're not showing that. And so even when we do talk about what Black successful people look like, it's always a super buttoned up and very hyper sort of professional sort of image. You literally Google it and you will see the same sort of image over and over again. And what we're trying to present to people is that, hey, you don't have to be in a three-piece suit. You don't have to be whatever the male version of fabulous is. I don't even know what that is. You can be a regular guy, right? Because if we're being honest, that exists for white people. You have a diversity of images, right? And it's a thing. You're like, oh, you're looking at that guy and he's wearing shoes from Payless or something. But it's a joke that, yeah, you never know. That guy could be a freaking, you know, multimillionaire. That doesn't exist for black people, right? And so we're trying to change that image because it's so, so powerful. And when people see that, they start to realize that, wait a second, I look like that person. I'm a regular person too. I don't need to change myself because there's this, there's this idea that I need to change. I need to become like this super buttoned up sort of persona. And through that, that will then lead to, you know, that's like what rich looks like. And it's like, no, it can look like whatever you want it to look like. It can look like you. And that's really core to, to our message. Yeah, Erica, for the people who come see you and use your coaching services, is there trouble figuring out what middle class and upper class or what rich looks like for the black population? Are there unrealistic expectations of either rolling in the dough or being completely on the other side and being poor, but we're missing the middle? I like people to define it for themselves. The truth of the matter is I want people to figure out what that looks like for themselves. And honestly, I just had a woman that I spoke to recently when we looked at what it needed for her to actually be financially independent. For her, it was $500,000. And that's wealthy. That's her number. That's what felt good. That's what her income and her expenses supported. And that is wealthy. The number in and of itself isn't a big deal to me. It doesn't really matter. I want people to create. What I like to do is to help them to see the vision of what that is for themselves. And then we figure out how to get them to their own personal wealth story not necessarily defining what it has to be. Just like Julian said, I mean, it is whatever you want it to look like. And I think the other part of this is when you don't have money and you don't know how you can make that look like for yourself, we do have this stereotype of what it should be. And I think that there's stereotypes amongst different racial groups as well about what a wealthy person looks like. I appreciate the millionaire next door, but I also think that Kirsten's right. We have to define the fact that it doesn't have to look the same all the time. I hate being buttoned up, but I'm a financial professional and you're never going to see me in a full-on suit because that's just not me. But I want people to know that everyday regular person who's made sacrifices and has goals can be wealthy in and of themselves, however they define it. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, 
purposeful cockpit like driving position and award winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. I have a confession to make. Money has been stressful to us lately. Look, we are in the midst of a house remodel. We are sending our first kid to college, and everything I thought I knew about budgeting has been out the window. The main savior for us has been Monarch Money. We started using Monarch Money about three months ago. My wife and I have been thinking a lot about our finances, and our budget has changed But we love Monarch Money because it's collaborative. We can both look at this together as well as share it with other people like a financial advisor if we want to. It's really aspirational. We can put information in there about, for instance, our kids' college education or about our remodel. And we can see where we need to go and where we are going. This is the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I love about Monarch Money is it's intuitive. It's really easy to sign on and connect all your bank accounts and credit cards. As we said, it's collaborative. It's also customizable. Like We were able to build in exactly what we wanted to do with our kids' college education as well as our home remodel. This is an app that is customer-focused. Really, Monarch Money is looking to make this app useful to you and me and all of us who are aspirational about our money. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners to the show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Chris, your thoughts on this. Does wealthy look different for black and white people? You know, when Julian was talking earlier, the thing I kept thinking about was that meme. I think it's like Bill Gates and maybe it's like Warren Buffett and they're just wearing just like regular old clothes and it's like captions like not a Gucci belt in sight or something like that. There's always different versions of it. And it's like, there's no black version of that. There's no other ethnicity version of that. It's just like, oh, look at these two. They're so wealthy, but you'd never be able to tell. And I don't think we have that type of representation. Like everyone here has been saying, you know, it's that super clean, like Damon John, you know, with his nice suits on, you know, it's that very polished look. And I don't think there's anything wrong with defining what wealthy looks like to you. Like what Erica said, you know, being wealthy doesn't mean it has to show outwardly. It just means you've achieved a certain financial state and everyone lives their lives differently. So if for you, that's just wearing shorts every day and sitting outside, you know, that's what it is for you. But if you like, you know, wearing nice suits, maybe you just wear more suits. There's no particular look, just like there's no particular lifestyle anyone has to choose. It's really up to you and what you're comfortable with. It's just lifestyle and I think money are two different things and they come together sometimes, but sometimes they stay separate. I like to transition a little bit to a different topic. Julian, I was reading about 
on your blog, you're meeting with the civil rights icon, Andrew Young. And in there, you say the civil rights movement was a failure because it lacked a sustainable economic plan. And obviously, the civil rights movement accomplished many things, but I found that to be a really interesting take. Tell me your thoughts on the financial evolution of the civil rights movement. So one, I applaud you for going back that far and reading that post. That was one of our earliest posts, but it's also one of the most intimate moments. I genuinely did have the pleasure of meeting, sitting with, and speaking with former Ambassador Andrew Young. Uh, That was the only time I ever got to meet him, and it was a really humbling moment. And I was speaking with him, and I'll try to be brief. And at the time, I was younger, uh, thinner, and super ambitious. And I was explaining to him all of my plans and things that I wanted to do to help my community and how I wanted to be just like him. But the fact that I had a business background sort of stopped him in his tracks. And he expressed to me, basically, and this is not verbatim, but what he was communicating to me was focus on yourself, focus on your financial well-being, focus on that again, right? So fill your cup, fill your cup again, and then go out there and start helping your community. Because what he expressed to me was basically a long line of exhausted foot soldiers who eventually flame out because they don't have a strong financial net. Obviously, you know, you think back to the time and just how brutal it must have been for them. Uh, So you add people who are essentially giving their entire lives to fight for a cause and essentially not having anything to fall back on. So his message was to focus on yourself first, focus on yourself again, basically create an emergency fund, create an emergency fund for that emergency fund, and then we can talk about what you're going to do for your community. All that to say, what has been the financial evolution? You can answer that problem going right back to the wealth gap, and it's been zero progress. We can talk about all of the progress from a legislative standpoint. We can talk about academic achievement, but you can look at home ownership rates. And I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I can tell you, you've not seen a lot of progress there. Certainly, you've not seen a lot of progress in terms of net worth. And in some cases, uh, once you start adjusting for inflation, those numbers have actually gone down. When we did have a healthy Black middle class in the 60s and basically prior to the big economic meltdown in 2008, which completely decimated Black wealth because the majority of that wealth was tied up in home equity, which completely was erased once most people, unfortunately, lost a lot of that wealth. So all that to say, not a lot of progress has been made. And that's why it's part of the reason why we were so comfortable and confident in stepping out out there and being transparent about our message because what's happening right now is not working. Kirsten, do we pat ourselves on the back about the civil rights movement and say, look how far we've come and just completely ignore the economic issue? I think that would be short-sighted. I mean, obviously we are proud of how far we've come, but we know how far we have to go. And at this point, the economic consequences are even bigger and more in your face. If you look at examples like Colin Kaepernick, who is an activist whose livelihood was taken away from him just for fighting and not even fighting, silently protesting, peacefully protesting about something that he believes in, the country is still set up in a way that that can cause great economic harm to him. And so until the civil rights movement and all movements acknowledge this disparity in economics, this is my criticism of the FIRE movement as well, where it's not really a movement until we fight towards some level of justice across this front. 
And I think it's important that we acknowledge the work of street activists and protesters and foot soldiers that's also very needed, but they have to be funded by someone and something. And instead of waiting for the powers that be, another reason why we're interested in retiring early is so that we can actively focus on social justice issues without consequence. Erica, you know, this idea of social justice It's easy to talk about it in the political realm. Sometimes it's much harder to talk about it personally when you're in front of people talking to them about their finances. Do you think our community as a whole is aware of these inequalities? When you are counseling people, is this affecting their lives? Oh, absolutely. It's affecting their lives. I think many of us are aware Many of us are inactive about it. And so I appreciate everything Kirsten said about the fact that we've got to do more. I think the way that we do business, the way that economically we are all connected and yet the disparities still exist is so hard. But I think that people have to want it more for themselves and for their communities. The way that my husband and I tend to live life too is that us bringing ourselves up brings up those around us and our families and those that we are able to touch in addition to the work that I do. And so I think we have to think broader in how our actions are affecting, for instance, how we do business, where we tend to spend our money and things like that. But I think that people are lackadaisical. The truth is sometimes I think that we aren't as active. We are sometimes can be lazy investors. We're very hidden about what it is that we do. Sometimes I know that people are quiet about what it is that they're doing. I think we need to be more vocal and start making a difference in a bigger fashion than just our four walls. Julian, I think you mentioned it in your presentation. It was people hearing this recognize the problem. If they haven't already, hopefully they are now. And what can we be doing differently in our communities, in our lives, and when we're talking to people? What is something practical and actionable that we can be doing differently once we become aware of this problem? I think that that is a series of one-on-one conversations. I don't know that there's any one thing that I can say, and it may sound cliche, but I think the first thing, you just start with awareness, right? Have more healthy conversations like this. Think about people other than yourself and just spend more time listening than assuming that your Black friends or co-workers are doing just fine because they're in the same building with you or on the same floor. I know plenty of people who make really, really great money and are living paycheck to paycheck. Right? We all know that because we've all consumed those sorts of articles and it blows our minds. Um, but I want you to think about that and then think about adding a layer as a Black person on top of it, right? So why is that? And is it different? It's not always just a matter of uh, miseducation or lack of education. Sometimes it's because, as Takshi mentioned before, a third of my paycheck is going to support my mother because she doesn't have a safety net. Or the other one goes to my cousin whose father is incarcerated and this is the money that we're using to help keep her in school because without that, she would fall into the trap of something that would just be horrible for her and her family, right? These are the sort of issues and the ugly underbelly of the the Black community that oftentimes when you are the one person that can do something about it, you carry that burden for everyone else. And I'll say that the stories aren't always sad or tragic. It can be a microaggression as simple as I spend $300 a month on my hair because my natural hair isn't seen as professional in the workplace. Or I send my child to this school because I have an accent. I don't want her to have an accent because 
I know how that's affected me and my employment. It's beyond just, you know, something always bad happening. It's a level of compassion about how different the entire experience is for Black Americans. And the one practical thing that you can do is be compassionate to that. And I will say that compassion and empathy is tacit. And so when people hear that, when people hear, you know, Black people asking them to be a little more compassionate and not call people stupid because of the choices that they make, it almost feels like we're playing tone police and that's not the case. I think after you spend significant time with someone who's different from you, you automatically feel a level of compassion for the life they live. And so, you know, it's like, go find a Black friend and meet someone who's different from you and learn from them. The one thing that I was going to say, too, is be willing to have this conversation multiple times, be interested and curious. I love the word curious versus looking at stereotypes or making assumptions or anything, but just be curious and be willing to listen more than you speak and have a heart for the ultimate end goal is that we all go up together. This is a team effort and everybody has to be willing to have this particular conversation on some micro level on a regular basis with those that they come into contact with. I'm very clear that when I have conversations with people just on the simple terms of hair, on the simple terms of clothing or the car that is driven or the schools that I choose to send my kids to or the names of my children, things like that, that the extra explanation is very okay so that they can gain an understanding of why. And if we don't take it to that next level with people who look different than us, then that curiosity does turn into assumption. And so I think being sensitive to that, open to that, and mindful of the fact that that needs to occur in order for us to all go up together is important. Yeah, I think Kirsten has used the term stay woke. I kind of like that because to me, what that means is our community as a whole needs to continue to be aware. And this gets back to the fact that Sometimes we start to feel like we're part of a community and don't realize that we have this vision of what our community is, and it may not be the vision of all of the separate community members. And so I think when you stay woke, I think the idea is that you continuously reevaluate your own assumptions and try to take other people's lives into consideration when you are thinking what you think or act the way you're going to act. I want to transition to Chris. This conversation reminds me a lot of a conversation Paul and I recently had about gender. And we had Tamika Downs on from the House of Five podcast. And she was talking about women in the personal finance community. And one thing she said to us is, you know, you need to sometimes bring your own chair to the table. And Paul and I were talking after the episode about this, and I have mixed feelings. And the reason I have mixed feelings is, of course, I think that in her case, she was talking about gender, but she also included race. If people aren't giving you a voice, you have to step up and have your voice be heard. But the other side of it is that it's also the responsibility for those people who've stopped listening to start listening again. And I struggle with this because as a white male in society, I almost feel like it's hypocritical for me to say, well, you need to speak louder, right? Because maybe I need to listen more carefully. So Chris, how do we parse out whose responsibility to fix this is? That's a great question. And, you know, I think with anything, there's not a simple answer. And it's going to take, I think, action from both sides, because I think it is true that 
there are plenty of people out there who are talking about these things and, you know, they have some platform, not as big as, as a lot of other people, but people still don't want to hear it. It's out there and maybe people just want to ignore it or you push it to the side and say, well, that's not my problem. Or, you know, you just kind of doubt it. You're like, that's not really what's going on. I mean, that's just their one perspective. And I think it takes someone, one being open-minded to hear from other people's perspectives, not locking yourself into what you know and what you've experienced. And I've had this happen to me plenty of times where, you know, I've used my experiences and things I've dealt with and I base my worldview on that or the way I see other people. And someone just mentioning something that kind of makes me question how I'm thinking or make me just think critically about the thoughts I've had to allow me to open my mind up and listen to a different perspective because sometimes you just get locked into it. I think it's just natural to, you've grown up a certain way, you've experienced certain things and you live your life based off these things you know. But that doesn't mean that they're true. That doesn't mean that they're always right. And it takes the person listening to these messages, the person hearing these stories to allow themselves to question what they know and to allow other ways of thinking, other possibilities of lifestyles to come in and be a real reality. So I think it's something that has to come from both sides. One of my best friends is a white female, and she recently came to me and said, hey, I want to apologize because I assumed that a lot of the racial inequalities that people say are out there were less than what they really are. And her apology was such that she had either ignored it, made it smaller, that she assumed that it wasn't as big as what really is present. So of course, there's this whole other conversation. But what I came to realize is that if you don't have to care, it's easy for you to take this conversation and it's on the back burner or is never thought about. But because African-Americans can't erase, hide, or change their skin color. We have no choice but to care when we walk into a room that things are different for us. Or a female, when we walk into the room, we understand that, you know, how we see life is from a different perspective. But for those white males or, you know, even for my best friend, white female, that she didn't ever have to care. She didn't walk into a room and ever feel inferiority or that she was the only one. She's always within company. Again, I think the word that I like to use is an ally, that I'm really getting big on having allies. And I think that this whole conversation is where we're having allies, having each other's back for one another. And her just having that conversation with me, she became an ally in an area that we hadn't discussed because she's starting to open her eyes to things that she thought was small potatoes. And it really is making a difference. And so we do need to speak up. We do need to find ways to help others speak up and let them know that it's a safe place to do so and find ways to educate on the racial, social, and economic levels that are going to make a difference in the end. And I think that having those allies and those difficult conversations is important. The fact that she even came to me was good. I mean, yes, I call her my best friend, but there's a lot that you don't talk about. And so I think that, you know, like I said, continuing this conversation in the small bits that we can every day is important. Julian, as I hear Erica talk, one thing keeps coming to mind. I love this idea of allies and allyship. In order to be allies, we though have to see each other. And to see each other, we have to recognize that when I talk about personal finance, I'm talking about personal finance or financial independence with my lens. And part of seeing that is realizing that there are groups of people who have a different lens. So I'm going to ask you, is there a black personal finance community? And if so, does the rest of the community recognize it? 
Yes, there are several. Our community, our following, right? Popcorn Finance, Erica, we all have our own following. Sometimes we all come together. Yeah, there is certainly a community. Do other communities recognize that? Yeah, I don't know that it's any different from, you know, I'm thinking about other organizations that, that I've been a part of that are part of larger sort of industry sort of, of organizations. And so, yeah, that exists. I think the real question is, or at least for me, I think the opportunity, I should say, is more so around how we define community in a more intimate way, meaning you know, when you're truly part of a community, we're all sort of giving something and receiving in return. And right now it's recognized that I see it over there, but I don't really like engage in that. I don't ever go over there, but we allow it, you know, that sort of thing. And so we're hoping that over time, as we continue to have really courageous and sometimes uncomfortable conversations like this, that we start to build bridges. I'm really big on bridges. And when people find those bridges, which I often find either happen over food, alcohol, or really great music. Those tend to be really great bridges where everyone can sort of relate and loosen up and then you start to engage in dialogue. So yes, those communities exist, but I think on paper, but I think in our hearts and in our minds, we've all got to do a better job of truly coming together and learning from one another. Kirsten, is personal finance and financial independence a possible bridge? And again, I think it's just because of the tribalism, especially in the in the fire aspect of personal finance. There's a lot of tribalism. There's a lot of hard and fast rules that come specifically from a white engineer, young man, you know, no kids, no kids, just very different different lifestyle. I think it's possible. It's getting there. I think with Julian said, with time and different voices uh, at the table, it'll get there. But Right now, it's a hard bridge simply because, again, there's some compassion missing in a lot of the resources. You know, there's face punches and stupid attacks, and it's just a lot of stuff that people assume, to Chris's point, it's because you had lacked an intelligence and didn't ask any other questions about the life that you led that took you to this point. It's not always an intelligence or an education thing. I really like that because as a white male, it is very uncomfortable to broach such a subject. And Erica was talking about her best friend and a white female broaching the subject of race. And it sounds like you were really good friends and race had not been discussed for long time. Yeah. I feel like that's a very common thing because I can't speak for you, but coming from a white perspective, I always super careful and I never want to be guilty of being Ross Perot saying air quote, you people. It's just something you have to dance around and tiptoe around. And I think the more we talk about this openly, the better things are. Absolutely. I will say that in the beginning of our friendship, when we realized we had a few things in common due to our kids, one of the things my best friend said to me, she actually said this and I just took it for what it was. It could have been very offensive to someone else, but she said, you guys are different. Let's talk about me and my husband. Mm-hmm. She was like, I don't see the same people here. I met her in Arizona. I don't see the same people here that I see in Mississippi. And I just want to know your backstory. So her saying you guys are different, somebody could have taken that a certain way, right? Yeah. but I didn't. And I heard her heart on that. And then we had that conversation about, yes, what we did to become the professionals that we were at the time and how we came from, you know, our single parent households and avoided a lot of things and were able to be successful in our own rights during that time. 
But it's interesting that she saw us different from what she was used to seeing from African-Americans in the place that she was. And so I appreciated that conversation. I think the one that we didn't have was on inequality. And it's interesting. I think one of the ways that she and I connected and why I can call her a best friend is because we did connect on money. That's one of the things that we had in common. We had very similar conversations, very similar aspirations. And so that was an easy part for us to become friends on that. But in other areas, you know, because she was willing to be vulnerable and maybe say stuff the wrong way, Mm -hmm. and I was willing to not be offended, that was a good foundation. And I think if we can translate that into other areas and other conversations where we're don't take offense so quickly, where we are, like I said, curious, but also we give information, be very open about how things are different so that people can understand even when they don't ask questions. Wonderful commentary. So let's bring this around to get to the real heart of the original question that was asked. Is the journey to financial independence different for African-American community? I'll give you all each a chance to give your last words on that question and anything additional that we haven't asked that you'd like to share. Chris, don't you mind going first? Yeah. Basically, is the journey to financial independence different for African-Americans and everyone else? I think with anything when it comes with money, it's going to be different for everyone. I mean, regardless of what your your nationality is, your ethnicity or whatever it may be, we can all be in different positions in life financially. So I think I can't just say that, yes, it's going to be harder for someone African-American or different. It really depends on where you are. But what I will say about it is for some of us in the African-American community, the first hurdle we have to get over is kind of what we've experienced so far up to this point and where our family stood financially and what their journey has been to get to where we are now. Because for some of us, the issue may be getting over the hurdle of just financial security before we can then move on to financial independence being a topic or an option. Other people, they've had experience, they've had time, their family has been secure, and now they're ready for that conversation. They just need to be introduced to it. So I would say it really varies from person to person, but I think anyone in the African-American community can participate in this, can be a part of this. It just takes that exposure. Then I guess the opportunity to then move and transition into this different form of life that I think has been exclusively white and male so far, I think in the bigger conversations. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's something that I, I wouldn't have known about if someone wouldn't have told me about. Like, this is what I learned about maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. I never heard about what financial independence is. So someone took the time to tell me about it, someone who looked like me. And I was like, okay, well, maybe this is something that I can do. This sounds achievable. And it made all the difference in the world. So that's just my thoughts on it. Do you think you resonated with that message more so because it came from someone of your community versus a white male? Yeah. The things they said wasn't something that I hadn't heard before. Uh, I've seen plenty of people talk about these concepts, but never framed in a way that I guess I felt like I related to. It was uh, an African-American woman who told me about this. And I was like, you know, tell me more about this. Where are you going with this? And, you know, it just felt like, okay, let me learn more. Let me kind of jump on this because, you know, it's not something new, not something I hadn't heard, but it just kind of clicked for some reason when she's told me about it. I was like, oh, you know, this sounds like something I could jump on board with. There's a lot to be said for modeling. And when you see someone who looks like you and comes from your community talking about a subject, it seems like it'd be easier to listen. The same question to Julian and Kirsten, is the path to financial independence different for the African-American community? Yes, it is. You know, we experience the world differently and in a lot of ways, unfortunately, it's not as easy, but this is just according to the data. But it's certainly possible, uh, and we are living proof of that. And so our hope, to your point about modeling, is that we can serve as an attainable sort of model for some people to follow, and, and hopefully they can learn from our wins 
uh, and our losses. We try to write openly about the things that we do well, the things that we're in the process of still learning. Uh, and hopefully it's done in a way that uh, entreats people to, at a minimum, sort of adopt uh, some of these uh, tactics. But yeah, I do believe the journey is different, uh, but it is without question possible. Totally agree. The journey is different and the destination is different. Life after FI is going to look very different for Julian and I than it will for our white counterparts. And at the end of the day, that changes the way that we take the journey, right? So yeah, I totally think it's different. Expand on that if you don't mind. What is different about your destination than a white counterpart? One is that it it singles us out. Again, to achieve financial independence, the way that we're defining it puts us outside of our peer group. It puts us in this very unique air of Black folks, even though we're just regular people. And then beyond that, we still have to pay a Black tax. There's still systemic barriers that money doesn't remove us from. We still have to go through life as Black people. And there are just choices that may not be available to us that are there for some of our peers. And Again, that just changes the way that we take the journey. We have to take into different considerations as to what life after FI looks like for us. And we refer to the idea of stealth wealth and the millionaire next door being stealth wealth in a lot of cases. But I think in in your instance, you're going to remove the stealth from that moniker, right? And demonstrate how it's possible. Thank you so much for sharing. Erica, same question to you. Is the path to financial independence different for the African-American community? Yes, it is a different path or a different journey. I'll probably say it that way. It's a different Mm -hmm. journey. And I do think that every person, no matter what their color is, no matter what their economic background or history is, has to define it for themselves. And the one thing that I'll say too is that the barriers that we're actually trying to overcome typically are from our past. And so we do have to make a point, a conscious effort, not to one, repeat the past, learn from the past as we're on the journey. And I think one of the biggest things that's different and why actually my husband and I are on this journey to financial independence is so that we can bring others up with us, that this doesn't have to be an all by ourselves isolated issue or achievement that our coming up brings others with us as well. And we have to bring voice to that. We can't be silent about it. It's okay to say, yes, I want to pay my house off. It's okay to say, no, this doesn't make sense in our situation because we have goals that are bigger than whatever this today money spend could be. And so it's different But if we all realize that we're all trying to create our own independence so that we aren't, I mean, in this day and age, we haven't even talked about the shutdown, but there's a lot of people in this current government shutdown who wish that they had some of the resources and tools in place where their money is concerned. And so I want to be independent of those things that our society brings into us, no matter what it is, 10 years down the line, you know, 50 years, I want to make certain that I have choices. And that, in my opinion, is what financial independence brings. And I want that for those that I love and care for. Wonderful commentary. Thank you so much. So I'll give each of you the chance to promote wherever you are on the internet and let us know what is up next for you. Let's go to Chris. What's up next for you and where can we find you? 
Oh, yeah. So you can find me over at uh, popcornfinance.com or really anywhere on social media. Just look for Popcorn Finance. I'm easy to, to spot on there. And uh, probably over the next quarter, that's how I've been planning out. <laughs> I have a, a couple of series I'm working on. One is a financial independence series um, as well. Just kind of just talking about different perspectives and different people on different parts of the journey. Julian and Kirsten are joining me on that, actually. So I'm excited to have them come out there. Also working on a series about people uh, living in tiny spaces, so tiny homes, RVs, boats. I'm fascinated with tiny homes. I can't tell you why. I'm not a tiny person, but sparks my interest, makes me want to talk about it. So that's kind of what I have uh, going on on the podcast. Julian and Kirsten, same for you. What's up next for you and where can we find you? What's up next for us? Uh, we are really excited. We are a part of a group of fantastic people that will be in an upcoming film called Playing With Fire, which is documenting the fire movement. That is slated to be released in mid-February, the last I heard. And so we are super excited about getting that message out to as many people as possible. We have no insight into the film <laughs> whatsoever, but we have a lot of faith uh, in the team behind it. So we're really excited about sort of taking the next step in terms of sharing this message with a much broader audience around the world. With us personally, uh, we're also really excited of uh, introducing, not necessarily introducing, but launching uh, a product. And so I am a classically trained chef. I love to eat. More importantly, we love to cook. And so we really want to help people cook better and to use cooking at home as a way to help stay on the journey. We have this belief that part of the reason why people fall off the wagon is because they're eating terrible food along the way. And so if they can eat better food, they might be a little more encouraged to continue to pay down that debt. And so hopefully we can provide some solutions to help people with that. Yeah, I think you covered what we're working on. I'll tell you guys where you can find us. We're at richandregular.com and Rich and Regular across all social media platforms. Erica, let's give you a chance too to promote yourself and where we can find you and what's up next for you. Awesome. So you can find me at tailormatebudgets.com. And what I'm working on or what's up next is I'm doing a seven day money challenge. And so that's coming up shortly. And it's designed to take people through just a seven day process on overcoming some money challenges in a short amount of time and having some quick wins. And so I'm super excited about that coming out here shortly. And you can also find me on Naked and Unashamed Book. .com. That's the name of my book. And it's just designed to help couples get on the same page with their money so that they can take this journey to their financial independence together as a team. So Paul, you know, there's just so much to say about this episode. Clearly, there is a racial wealth gap. You know, the numbers tell the story, right? The median net worth savings for African-American people in Boston was something like $18. And I think anyone who heard that statistic was just blown off their feet. It was completely unexpected. What I got from this conversation is first and foremost, this is a civil rights issue. You can't say that the civil rights movement is over and still have such a huge wealth inequality. It's just not possible. We like in our community, in the financial independence community, and kind of reference the fact that people who don't have money, you know, it's kind of their fault, right? We can say that. Mm. We can say, well, maybe they're not saving, maybe they're not hustling, maybe they're not investing. But when you look at a whole population and you look at this wealth gap, you can't use that excuse anymore. This is a civil rights issue. And we in our community have a number of black content producers. Mm -hmm. And we can talk to them about Roth IRAs and we can talk to them about side hustles and we can talk to them about landlords. And it mistakenly makes us feel like we understand them 
or we understand what they've gone through or we understand their experience because we can speak the same language. But the truth of the matter is there's been a completely different evolution. And so our community as a whole may not quite understand what it takes for an African-American to become financially independent. We might not understand the different stressors that community deals with compared to the ones we deal with. And it's really easy to forget that. It's really easy just to look and say us. We like to use these pronouns. We say us and we. And I think it's well-intentioned. I think the point is we feel a connection to almost everyone in the community because we speak the same language. But what I'm realizing is that our paths, our journeys may be radically different. Yeah, I don't think we as white males will ever even begin to come close to understanding where they're coming from, what that must be like. And you mentioned that we forget that they have different obstacles, but I don't think it's forget. I think is we don't know. We lose track of the idea that this, not even lose track, we just aren't aware of it. It's commonplace to assume that your path is similar to other people's and their paths are similar to yours. It is just a very unfortunate ecosystem that we live in. And by acknowledging it, it is taking it one step further. And the more we have this conversation and more we bring it up, I think is how we start to improve it. Right. And these conversations, they're not comfortable. I mean, admittedly, going into this panel, I was worried. I was worried that I wouldn't say the right thing. Mm -hmm. I was worried that I wouldn't understand. Or even more importantly, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to bring out the story as it deserves to be told. You know, you want to run from these conversations. And I think one of the messages of this panel is that we need to run to them, Mm. not away from them. And no matter how uncomfortable that is, you know, I'm talking about uncomfortable for me, but heck, I imagine if I was black, they'd be uncomfortable for me too. And tiring, just exhausting to keep having these conversations. You know, what brings a community together? Well, there's shared knowledge and thoughts and beliefs, but there's also empathy. And I don't think you can be a community unless you have empathy. And I don't think you have empathy unless you can really imagine yourself walking in someone else's shoes. And I don't think you can imagine walking in someone else's shoes unless you take the time to talk to them and learn what that feels like. And I guess for me, that's the big message of this episode is someone else's path may feel different from yours. And if we really want to be a community and if we want to improve things, right, if we want to look at this wealth gap this racial wealth gap and say that this is a civil rights movement and it needs to be fixed, we've got to start with empathy and understanding. And only then when we truly build a community, can we move to action. Yeah, I like talking about this because it's uncomfortable. The fact that it is uncomfortable is probably the very reason we should be talking about it. Everybody should be talking, not just you and me, Doc, or just the black community, the financial independence community as a whole, and really our society, more importantly, our society. This is a problem that affects everybody. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it's really eye-opening because, again, when I waltzed into this community, it was so easy to just see my experience. And not even just my experience. It was easy to see other people who looked and sounded like me, even if their experiences were different. So 
I could talk to physicians who had a major debt experience and I'm a physician too. And so I could connect with them even though I didn't have a debt experience. So you find a way to feel part of that community even though you don't have that experience because it's within your realm of understanding and it's happening to people you ultimately feel a part of that group. And it's harder when it's a group of people that you, for whatever reasons, don't feel immediately a part of. And that's what's up next. So this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Chris from Popcorn Finance, Erica Young from TaylorMade Budgets, and Julian and Kirsten from The Rich and Regulars. Normally, I'd say that's a wrap, but today I'm going to say stay woke. Nailed it. Awesome. I love it. Oh, my God, I love that. That was the best ending I've now had for a show. Yeah, that's what I thought. He's going off the script, and and like he's he's done that. So well, well, well. that is so great. I love it. That was perfect, man. That was perfect. I think we should just change our our ending. Just say, just stay woke, guys. Stay Stay woke. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.